You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together to this beautiful campsite uh, during these warm summer days in a time of peace. Lord, I pray that you will guide our minds and our thoughts heavenward, and also as we try to discover your principles for how to manage some of the more practical things in our lives, such as our money, help us to be faithful to your word and the principles that you have given to us. Guide us this hour and this coming week as we learn and discuss and study together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you've come to this seminar. It's entitled End Time Finance. And we are going to be talking about personal finance. We're going to be dealing with actual numbers and dollars and cents and practical things, all couched within biblical principles and also within the greater context of our Avenus prophetic understanding. So the first half of the week, we're going to be dealing with more of the basics. We're going to cover personal finance and biblical principles. And then the last half of the week, we're going to be looking more prophetically and sort of tying the things together. And our tit- uh, the title of our seminar this afternoon is Neither Poverty Nor Riches, Redefining Wealth and Prosperity. And this is going to give us the introduction to the week. It will give you, us some of the ideas that we're going to be discussing more in depth later on, and also covering some principles, at least in a broad context, uh, that we may not be able to dive really deep into, but at least we will have given you a broad overview. So let's begin. And uh, you must be wondering who I am. My name is Alistair Huang, and uh, my official title is I am the Executive Director of Audioverse. But beyond that, I am also a chartered financial consultant. Uh, that is the professional de- one of the professional designations for financial planning. And I am currently in the process of starting a registered investment advisory firm in the state of Tennessee. And so I do have some training in that regard. But beyond that, I am a business major. I have a degree in business. But that's not as important as the fact that I was also a math teacher in high school. And I like to tell people, personal finance, you do not need a business degree to manage your personal finances. But you do need to know how to do math. (laughs) You need to know how to add and subtract and divide and know how to do percents and those types of things. Now, about that business degree, I have a master's degree in business from Southern Avenue's University. That's not the interesting part. What's interesting is that I was able to graduate debt-free. And we're going to be talking about debt and student loans a little bit. Uh, I think it's in our third session. And if we have time, then I'll tell you the story of how I I was able to uh, get my education there with no debt. My wife and I also paid off our house in two years. And this was in, we bought our house in 2013, and we paid off our house in 2015, exactly the month when we became parents uh, for the first time in 2015. And uh, we recently had our second daughter, you can see them in the picture here, just three months ago. So you'll see my wife and uh, my two girls on the campgrounds here, and you will, if you're wondering what we are thinking, bringing a three-year-old here or a three-month-old on this trip, we are wondering the same thing ourselves. Uh, But it is certainly a blessing to have them. They are a blessing from the Lord. Now, as far as the financial side, one thing that I was warned about when uh, we had our first child is that be prepared that children will nuke your budget. Well, 
what happened? For us, in the year 2016, the very first full year that we were parents, we spent 25% of our take-home pay. We gave 26% away, and we were able to save 49%. And I didn't give you all the numbers. My wife and I are, are rather frugal people. This was an increase uh, from when we were before we had children. But in 2020, this was last year, we managed to spend only 16%. And we gave 27% away, and we were able to save uh, 57%. And of course, I had increase in salary during that time, which meant we kept our lifestyle the same, and we didn't inflate our lifestyle, and that's how these numbers work out. And uh, you must be wondering, what did you say you do again? What, what kind of job do you have? You must be rolling, right? You must have money flowing out of your ears. Well, I actually work a ministry salary, and you understand when we say ministry salary, that's a code word, right? Code word for not very much. <laughs> That's what ministry salary means. I work for a supporting ministry of the Adventist Church, Audiverse is a nonprofit organization, and my wife, she doesn't work. She's a stay-at-home mom. And so, oh, you've got to have a rich uncle or something, right, bankrolling you. Well, we, we actually don't. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, my parents and my wife's parents, they're alive. We have never received an inheritance. So all of this is just through crunching the numbers, living by a budget, and some of you must be wondering, do you have like some information, more information about how you did this? My wife and I actually started a blog called Saving the Crumbs, and you can find us at savingthecrumbs.com where we have documented, uh, maybe not as much recently, but for a number of years there, very, very minute details uh, of our personal financial situation, our budget, how much we made, how much we spent for different things, our food budget, things of that nature. So you can find us at savingthecrumbs.com. And I also have some Previous financial seminars that have already been recorded, they are available at audioverse.org, which, as I told you, that's where I work. That's uh, the ministry I represent. So you can look me up there and find some of my other presentations. So now, for the balance of our time together, just to whet our appetite, to get us warmed up for the rest of the week, we're going to have a quiz, all right? So the rest of our presentation is structured in the form of a true and false quiz. Ten questions true or false, and I want to get your involvement, okay? So get, you, get your arms ready. I'll be asking true or false, and you tell me what you think the answers are. So question number one, we should not talk about money because it is the root of all evil. Who thinks this is true? Okay, all right. Who thinks this is false? Yes, that's what I thought based on the, the audio feedback I'm getting. Okay, good, because we know the Bible verse. It's not, the, it's not that money is the root of evil, right? What is it? 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The issue is not with the green pieces of paper themselves. It's with the person holding them, right? And there's one thing about personal finance. It is 80% personal and only 20% financial. The issue of money is so important, not because of the dollars and cents and our net worth and our income. It's about a heart of the person, right? That's the issue. It reveals us to us who we are. So we look at our life today. Have you been to the gas pump recently? You remember how much you paid for gas last year? Has it been up or down? Yeah, see, everybody knows. <laughs> because every time we go by the gas pump, 
we notice, oh, gas is down five cents this week, or it's up 50 cents from five months ago. Money permeates every aspect of our lives. Let me give you a few more examples. We've got these little devices, right, in our, in our pockets. And I like to call them little vampires. They suck money out of our bank accounts dry, right? I mean, you buy the phone, and the phones, you notice, they just get more and more expensive. And they try to get us to get these subscription plans, or else to replace them, or to have warranties on them. And then not only that, they want you to put your credit cards on there, and you're buying stuff online, and there's these things called app stores, and it's like, oh, it's just 99 cents, buy, 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 buy. And so all of a sudden, this thing's like a vacuum cleaner sucking us dry of our money, and guess what? It can do it all wirelessly. Isn't that amazing? We have money flowing digitally now, and then, of course, in the age of COVID, I don't have to tell you that even sickness and physical health has very clear financial dimensions. Not just not being able to go to work, the cost of medicine or seeing the doctor and health insurance. Yeah, all of those things. But just think of the economic, worldwide economic impact of an invisible virus. Money permeates all of aspects of life. And we all have heard proverbially how relationships frequently have friction because of money issues. We know that education especially private education. Any of you go to Adventist schools? You uh, were actually at an Adventist school, so maybe I need to watch what I say. But education has far exceeded the rate of inflation by something like four to five times over the past few decades. Education is expensive. And then even in conventions and convocations like where we are right now, when you see a big camp like this, every campsite, every chair, all the lights, every meal, it costs something. There's money involved. And then within even the church, when we think about money, we hear about schools shutting down and, and, and ministries shutting down. And almost without fail, there is some financial dimension to why that is the case. So our question initially was, should we talk about money or not? And I think it would be irresponsible not to. In fact, the Bible has over 2,000 texts on money. I think God actually wants us to know a few things about personal finance. So let's go to question number two now. True or false? To save money is to be faithless in God's ability to provide for us. And in parentheses, sometimes we, particularly as Adventists, we'd like to interject, well, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming so soon, we don't need to worry about the future, right? And it's being faithless. It's like saying, my Lord delays his coming if we're saving money. Now that I sort of, I, I might have poisoned the well here a little bit with, the, with all my ad-libbing, but how many of you think this is a true statement, that we, that saving money is faithless? All right, how, how, how about how many think it's false? How many of you are like, I don't want to answer this question, I think it's a trick question. All right, some of you, some of you are like that. Okay, so let's take a look at the Bible verse that I think we've all heard before, Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 34. Therefore take no thought, saying, Where, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek... For your heavenly fathers knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But, what does it say? What should we do? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Looking at this passage at first glance, it sure seems like Jesus, who's the one speaking in this passage, is saying, don't plan for the future. 
just worry about today. God will take care of you. Do you, do you get that, catch that vibe? Like, it could be interpreted that way, right? But let's be a little bit more diligent in our Bible study here. What does it actually say? What should we do first? What must we do first before God will provide all these things, add, add these things to us? What do we do? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that begs the question, how do we seek the kingdom of God? Is there anything that, is there any active part we have to play in this exchange? It's not just imaginary, right? It's not, it's not just magical thinking that, oh, I'm just going to wish that God will provide and he will. There's an active part. I heard prayer. I think that's certainly a part of it. But as good Adventist, I was in my, uh, my daughter's children's class. What do we do every day? Read our Bibles, pray every day, and we'll grow, 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 right? That's the song. So really, to seek first the kingdom of God, if I could put it as succinctly as I can, we need to study God's word, identify his will for us, and we need to obey the word of God. Would you agree that's sensible for what Christians ought to do? So how do we seek first the kingdom of God? Let's take a look at what the Bible actually has to say in this area of financial management. Proverbs 6, verse 6 and 8, particularly saving money, I should say. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. So the Bible recommends, go learn something from the smallest creature of the earth, the ant. What do they do? They make provision in the time of plenty for a time of need, right? The ant shows us to save. Proverbs 21, verse 20, I'm going to show you this verse in two versions. The NIV says, the wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. The King James Version says, there is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spends it up. You put them together, it's very simple. In Proverbs, we're told the wise are the ones who save and the fool is the one who spends everything, right? And here... You tell me, is the average American wise or foolish? 60, this is according to Forbes magazine. 63% of Americans don't have enough savings to cover a $500 emergency. I don't mean to be rude, but I must say that $500 should not actually be considered an emergency with the way that our currency and the cost of living is concerned. Uh, emergencies, I'm thinking, is like, you know, you get in a car accident and you go to the hospital. But a $500 savings is a pretty low bar, uh, if I could say, from a financial planning perspective. But what we're told is that o- almost two-thirds of Americans cannot meet a $500 emergency if it were to arise. The Bible makes it even more, a, a bit sharper than that. First Timothy 5.8, Paul writes, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, He has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Those are some very strong words. So as a believer of the Bible, one who is seeking first the kingdom of God, I have a responsibility to provide for my family. And if I don't, we're told I'm worse than an infidel. So saving in provision for the needs of our family, certainly I think it is a biblical thing to do. All right, question number three, true or false? God wants us to live a comfortable life. All right, this one might be a little trickier. 
All right, how many of you think this is a true statement? True? Okay, some. They're going to take the bait, all right? Who thinks it's false? And who thinks it's a trick question? You guys are thinking, okay, now what do you mean by comfortable, right? Like, what does that word mean? I, I know, you guys are smart. Councils on Stewardship, page 250. It says this, had you and your wife understood it to be a duty, remember that word, a duty that God enjoined upon you to deny your taste and your desires and make provision for the future. Just a sidebar, making provision for the future, back to our previous question, it means saving, right? That's what it means. Instead of living merely for the present, you could now have had a competency and your family have had the comforts of life. So whatever the word comfort means, Ellen White was comfortable using that word in describing how the believer's life ought to be. Now, let's, you know, let's give a balancing statement. Avenue's Home, page 379, it says, God does not require that his people should deprive themselves of that which is really necessary for their health and comfort. There's that word again. But, but, he does not approve of wantonness and extravagance and display. So you see the balance there. Is it okay to have conveniences for the health and comfort of our family? Yes. Sometimes we get this idea, the work of God is going to be finished with greater sacrifice than it was begun. That's a true statement. But does that mean we have to live in a cardboard box? Do we have to live in the dead of Michigan winters with no heat or in a tent outside? Of course not. God is not asking us to become monks in a monastery, you understand. But the balance is not to be extravagant uh, or to be wanton in our display. Now, I will have to say, this means that this is a, there's a lot of gray area. A family with six children, right, is going to have a very different type of lifestyle than a single person who might be an MD or a dentist or something like that, right? There, there is enough room for variance in these principles. So here's a statement, Leo Rostin, an American, American humorist, money can't buy happiness, but neither can poverty. I think uh, that might be worth chewing on that one a little bit. All right, question number four. This is an interesting one, okay? True or false? Being in debt is a sin. Hmm, who thinks this is true? It's a sin to be in debt, okay? I always have a, a divided crowd on this one. Okay, who thinks this is false? All right, there are still some of you who think this is a trick question. This one's not a trick question, okay? Publishing Ministry, page 209. Sister White writes this. I now write to ask you if you will let me have the use of $2,000. She's asking to borrow $2,000 to help me in bringing out books that the people need. If I should fall in the conflict before the Lord's appearing, my sons would carry forward the work of circulating my books according to my plans. When the expense of issuing my books is lessened, the sales will soon pay up all my debts. So, is it a sin to be in debt. Sister White is not our example, right? Let's be very clear. She was a sinner, needs to be saved by grace, just like all of us. But if it were a sin on the order of violating one of the Ten Commandments, I don't think she would have said this. You understand what I'm saying? I don't think she would have gone and said, hey, can I borrow $2,000 to print my books? And if I were to die before I pay it off, my sons will take care of it. I don't think she would have said that. So let's see, how, how does this jive, right, with some of the discomfort? Because we know it's like, Dad, oh, are you sure? 
Well, the Bible says the borrower is servant to the lender, and that word is probably better translated slave. And Avidus Home, page 393, says, be determined never to incur another debt. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run in debt. This has been the curse of your life, getting into debt. Avoid it as you would the smallpox. And if I could update this statement, she would, might say today, avoid it as you would COVID-19, right? And so on one hand, Sister White asked to borrow $2,000 to print her books. But on the other hand, she says, avoid it like the smallpox. And the Bible says it is like being a slave to the lender. So now let me ask you the question. Is it a sin to be a slave? It's not. Is it a sin to have smallpox? No. But would you, should we aspire to either condition? <laughs> no. So you see, that's the, that's the perspective that we have on debt. Debt is bad. Bad like slavery. Bad like a plague, like smallpox and COVID-19. But it's not a sin. Okay? And so on, in our third session later this week, we're going to dive deeper into debt and actually discuss when is it appropriate to have debt and how do we figure those type of things out. All right, so question number five. Hopefully this one's a little bit easier. A budget is a cornerstone of sound personal finance. True or false? Who thinks this is true? All right, a lot more hands on this one. Who thinks this is false? All the people who don't like to budget. They're like, I want to raise my hand on this one. <laughs> but we have counsel about this. Counsel is on stewardship, page 294. In the study of figures, the work should be made practical. Let every youth and every child be taught not merely to solve imaginary problems, but to keep an accurate account of his own income and outgoes. Let him learn the right use of money by using it. Let me tell you something. In a math, theoretical math problem where you're adding and subtracting, getting the numbers wrong is inconsequential. But all of a sudden, oh, I have to keep my budget. Oh, I have to file my taxes. If I add or subtract incorrectly, it has actual financial ramifications. And all of a sudden, everybody wants to make sure their math is double-checked, right? Make sure everything is accurate. This is what she's talking about. Keep a budget because you'll learn better when you actually look at what's going on with your money. Avenue's Home, page 374. All should learn how to keep accounts. Some neglect this work as non-essential, but this is wrong. All expenses should be accurately stated. Having a written budget a plan for your money, right? I think Dave Ramsey's the one that says a budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. So a budget is an important tool in our personal financial journey. All right, question number six, true or false? Giving a 10% tithe is the extent of my financial obligation to God. Who thinks this is true? Who thinks this is false? All right, I, I heard some very vociferous responses on this one. That's very good. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. I think sometimes we have this misconception. We say that tithe, 10%, and then we say offering, it is a free will, right? It is as the Lord has prospered you. And we kind of think... Sometimes we might leave the wrong impression that the offerings is somehow optional. Mm -mm. It's not optional, at least according to this passage. And uh, we're not going to be spending too much time this week talking about stewardship topics in particular. Michigan Conference has a great stewardship department. There are plenty of resources out there, and I have some messages on Audiverse on the subject already. So 
I'm just going to sum it up with this next statement. This is really the foundational principle of uh, biblical financial stewardship, Christ Object Lessons, page 351. Some think that only a portion of their means is the Lord's. When they have set apart a portion for religious and charitable purposes, they regard the remainder as their own, to be used as they see fit. But in this, they mistake. How much of our possessions? All we possess is the Lord's, and we are accountable to him for the use we make of it. God is the creator and the owner of all things. We're merely the manager. And I like to make this analogy. When we think about the corporations of the world, they have owners called shareholders. And the shareholders get a cut of the profits. That's called the dividends. But the dividends is not the only thing that they get. It simply is a representative of that they are the owner of the whole enterprise. And this is the same way with God. Our life enterprise, God is the owner. He owns 100%. We, we might be the CEO of this firm. And the 10% is merely God's dividend. It is merely a representation that he owns 100% of everything else. All right, so that's the way I like to think about it in business terms. God is the owner of everything that we have. We're merely the managers hired to manage it in our life. All right, let's get to some of the fun stuff. Question number seven. True or false, investing is gambling, is not biblical, and is only for the rich. Hmm, how many of you think this is true, that investing is a game of gambling? True, anyone? Maybe you think this is false. Some of you don't really want to participate in this, but okay, that's fine. It's okay. We read this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 27. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Jesus here is telling the parable of the talents. And we know that it is a parable and that it has, it has many applications about all of the talents, meaning the gifts that God has given to us to improve, for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. And so we talk about our speech and our time and our strength and our intellect and our influence and all of these things. There's a whole chapter in the book Christ Object Lessons about it. And guess what one of those talents are? Well, it has to be money. You know, when we interpret scripture, we try to take the literal meaning. When we take the Bible as it reads, we don't disregard the literal meaning of the text unless it is necessary. And so sometimes I wonder why people say this passage, talking about the talents, it represents every possible gift that God has given to us except the one thing that's the actual symbol that Jesus was using. You get what I'm saying? Money is one of the talents. It's not the only talent that he's talking about, but it certainly is one of them. And God expects a return. Okay, he says, when I come, I should receive what was my own with interest. Now, here's an interesting uh, passage. Sister White in Select Messages, Volume 2, page 330, she's writing to her nephew, F.E. Belden. And I think we've seen his name in our hymnals. He was a young man at this time when Ellen White was writing him. She says this, you might have had, even from your limited wages, means in reserve for any demand. It might have been invested in a lot of land, which would be increasing in value. But for a young man to live up to the last dollar he, show, he earns shows a great lack of calculation and discernment. So Sister White gives counsel to a young man, even one without a huge income, you should be putting something away. 
you should be doing something with your money so that you have something in case of an emergency and also in something that is increasing in value. So Sister White, based on this passage here, she is not anti-investing, okay? But on the other hand, we need to be careful to understand, this is not license then to just merely speculate in everything that crosses our path. This is not a blanket, um, you know, justification to just jump into any Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme or things like that. That's not what she's talking about. But wise, careful, conservative investing. In this case, she's talking about land or real estate. Uh, We'll talk more about that later in this week as well. I just want to share the principle here that it's not merely for the rich, and she doesn't view it as merely something that is inappropriate for the believer. Something a bit more nuts and bolts now. Adventist Home, page 396, she gives this advice. Every week to a family in her day, she says, every week you should lay by in some secure place five or ten dollars not to be used up unless in case of sickness. This may also be called an emergency fund, which she herself, there are stories of her actually having one herself. With economy, she adds, you may place something at interest. With wise management, you can save something after paying your debts. How many of you think it's, you can, you can put away five or $10 a week? That's pretty reasonable, right? It's not, no big deal. Five, $10 is almost like, you know, loose change in the couch cushions almost. But you notice at the end of this statement, I have the date 1884. That's when this statement was writ- written. And uh, if you know where I'm headed with this, $5 in 1884 is not worth $5 today because of this little thing called inflation. So I ran the numbers, and you can see there, 1884, uh, $5, 5 or $10 per week amounts to $20 to $40 per month, or $260 or $520 per year. Now, we look at those numbers, and we think, oh, yeah, no problem. I can do that. But let's adjust for inflation to 2021. What are we looking at? We're looking at $135 to $270 per week, $540 to $1080 per month, and roughly $7,000 to $14,000 per year. Now, okay, so we're, okay, this is a little bit more uh, uncomfortable now. And uh, it's interesting also, I'll just note, for those of us here in the United States, $7,000 is right at the annual contribution limit for an IRA or Roth IRA for those above the age of 50. This is including the $1,000 catch-up contribution. For those under 50, it's $6,000. So she's talking roughly that range of numbers just to give you a comparison. So when we talk, think about Ellen White giving counsel on saving, the 5 or $10 in her day is equivalent to $135 to $270 in our day. So she's not just saying just some tiddly wink, you know, a few quarters here and there. She says you need to be pretty diligent about having some savings stored away. And she says, also, you remember the statement, with economy, you can place something at interest. So don't just hide it in the the mattress, put it and earn something with it. So here's a graph, and I use 8% interest. And everybody asks this question, where do you get 8% interest? So let me just tell you where I'm getting this number. 8% is the, over the past century or so, this is the average return of the S&P 500 index. And you... In most employer-sponsored 401k or 403b programs, there will be a fund 
that has this type of investment in it. It's sometimes it's called a total market index fund or an S&P 500 index fund or an ETF. And certainly every IRA would have this available to you. And so I use 8% because it is widely accessible to most people in America. Okay, so this is not some impossible uh, type of investment that is super exotic. You need to be in a hedge fund or something to get. No, it's not like that. Even in most employer-sponsored retirement plans, this is something that is um, achievable. And so this graph shows us over a 30-year career, if we just followed this advice, $7,000, $14,000 per year. This is the adjusted for inflation to 5 to $10 per week idea. Over 30 years, $7,000 per year would turn into $800,000, whereas $14,000 would be $1.6 million. So you see, it doesn't really take an exorbitant amount of income to accomplish some of these numbers. So investing is not just for the fat cats on Wall Street and the rich people. It is not just gambling. In fact, we have good evidence from the inspired pen that we ought to be thinking along those terms. All right. So along these theme, this theme, question number eight, true or false? It is better to save small amounts regularly while young than to save a lot later when we earn more. Okay, how many of you think this is true? Okay, how many of you think this is false? All right, because good, you guys actually uh, are pretty unanimous on this one because there are sometimes those people who think I'm still in school or I just started my career. I am just starting out. I need to buy the house. I need to get married, get the car, have the kids. Once I pay off my student loans and I get my car, the nice car I always wanted, the big house, whatever, then I'll start saving for retirement. I've got time for that. Well, let's take a look at some math, okay? I'm going to give you this example through the eyes of Thrifty Tiffany and Spendy Sally. These two young ladies are the same age. And Tiffany decides to save $2,000 per year from age 20 to age 30. And she invested at the 8% rate of return, what we talked about just now. And so over 10 years, she invested $20,000 of her own money over these 10 years. And the year that she stops saving, when she turns 30, Sally starts saving. So Sally wants to start a career, have a family, do all those things in her 20s. And at 30, she says, okay, I'm ready to do the adult thing now. I'm going to settle in. I'm going to start saving. She saves $2,000 per year from age 30 to 65. Invested in the same investment, 8% rate of return, so she's invested $70,000 in total of her own cash over a 35-year period. So when they turn 65, which is no longer the full retirement age for Social Security, I understand that, but just for the sake of the comparison here, who has more at age 65 when they retire? Who do you think? Is it Tiffany or Sally? Just because of the name I gave them, you probably know where this is headed. But let's take a look at what the numbers actually are. So the final count, Tiffany will have half a million dollars, whereas Sally will have 380000 But how could this be? How could this be? One lady invested far less of her own money and for a far shorter period of time than the other. But she ended up way ahead. The secret is simply... The combination of compound interest and time. Frequently, even famous investors like Warren Buffett tell us that the secret ingredient to investing is time. 
It is not some exotic investment that you have to reach out and hire some you know, fancy Wall Street broker and set up a hedge fund and all of these weird you know, tax shelter type you know, strategies. That's not where it is. The earlier you start, the better off you'll be. And so looking at a graph of uh, the journey that Tiffany and Sally went on, you see the blue graph. Tiffany had a 10-year head start. She was running unopposed, and she just started stacking the investments and compounding interest, if you remember in your algebra, is interest earning interest on itself. So that's why you see it's not a linear growth path. That would be simple interest. Compound interest becomes a hockey stick exponential growth, and eventually it picks up so much steam that even though Sally is just adding more and more and more of her own money every year, she just can't catch up. And so the lesson is, based on this Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Time is the secret sauce to invest in. All right, question number nine. True or false, the better way to reach financial independence is to earn more rather than to save more. And this is financial independence however you define it. Most of the financial world defines financial independence as being able to provide for your uh, income through your own investments without needing another source of income. But financial independence could be getting out of debt for you or having a home paid off or something to that effect. So in any of these cases, which is better, to save more or to earn more? So is this a true statement or false statement? Who thinks this is true? Who thinks this is false? Okay, so we have a little bit of divide here. So the question is, is it better to earn more or to save more? And just to, obviously, it's the best to do both. If you earn more and you save more, then you get ahead the fastest. But this is if you had to choose one or the other. So let's take a look at this example. We have Saver Sam and Consumer Carl. Sam over here earns $50,000 a year, which is just under the median household income in the United States today. And he spends $20,000 to live per year. And so he manages to save $30,000 of his income or 60% of his income. Carl, on the other hand, he makes three times as much. He makes $150,000. He spends $120,000 on his lifestyle, and he saves the same $30,000 per year, which is 20% of his income. Which of these two individuals has greater financial independence? You know, that's a tricky question because it depends how you define financial independence. Because if you think of financial independence as being able to buy more stuff have a bigger house, have the nicer car, go on fancier vacations, then in that case, who would, who would be in a better position? It would be Carl, because he has a bigger income. But think of it another way. For each year that Sam works, he can take one and a half years off, whereas Carl has to work four years before he can take one year off. So if we just had that flip of perspective, who has more financial independence then? Sam. Because he has what is literally what we call freedom. He doesn't have to work as much because he doesn't need as much. And so there is a double benefit of living on less mathematically. By living on less, we are able to save a greater percentage of our income immediately. Okay, that is the key, percentage. Because based on Actual numbers, $30,000, that's how much both of them saved. And I also want to be kind to uh, 
our friend Carl in this fictional example, he was saving 20%, which is still far in excess of the average American savings rate. So he's actually doing, he's still doing quite well. I don't want to throw him under the bus if any of you relate with him, okay? But the double benefit of living on less, the other reason besides saving a greater percentage of our income immediately is that our total amount of savings required in the future is permanently decreased, meaning our standard of living has decreased, so we need less. That's the secret here. And so the best path to get ahead, depending on whether financial independence is really the goal, is uh, to actually spend less. All right. Question number 10. This is our last question for the day. True or false, God wants us to prosper and to build wealth. True or false. Let's see our hands. Who thinks God wants us to prosper and build wealth? Okay, who thinks this is false? How many of you feel uncomfortable with this question? Like it feels like kind of skin makes, makes our skin crawl because let's take a look at a few statements. That might be the reason why we feel that cognitive dissonance. Matthew 19 verse 24 says this, And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. We've all heard this passage before, haven't we? James 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days." Does this sound like a good time for the rich folk at the end of time, according to this passage? Mm-mm. Doesn't sound like it to me. And so that begs the question, wealth is bad, right? That's what it sounds like if we were to take those verses in isolation. Are there other statements, though, in Scripture that says something to balance out our view? Third John, in the New Testament, Third John, verse 2. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest do what? Prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. In Deuteronomy 8 verse 18, this one is interesting. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. And there are other statements to this effect that God gave as promises to the Israelites. You shall be the head and not the tail. Right? You shall lend to many nations and shall not borrow. Right? There are statements to this effect. Review and Herald, March 1, 1884. Ellen White writes, The desire to accumulate wealth is an original affection of our nature, implanted there by our Heavenly Father for noble ends. Wow. Sister White actually wrote that? It sounds a little off-brand. Councils on stewardship. Look at what this says. Page 113. This is the balancing statement here. The followers of Christ are not to despise wealth. They are to look upon wealth as the Lord's entrusted talent. There's that word again. The parable of the talents. Sister White applies it here to wealth as well. By a wise use of his gifts, they may be eternally benefited, by, but we are to bear in mind, or bear the fact in mind, 
that God has not given us riches to use just as we shall fancy, to indulge impulse, to bestow or withhold as we shall please. So you see the key here. It's not to just enrich ourselves and have a grand old time like the rich, rich fool, right? Let's build barns and bigger barns and fill them up and, you know, take your ease, soul, eat, drink, and be merry. That's not what she's talking about. God owns all things, but we are to be diligent stewards to increase the talent that he's been given to us for the purpose of what he calls us to serve him with. So the paradox of wealth that we see in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy is that the Bible condemns greed and excessive riches. I mean, you might say it is dealing with the 10th commandment, covetousness. But the Bible on the flip side encourages prosperity. I think we've seen the tension between both of these statements. Wealth within the church even has become sort of this weird, weird concept where it is aspirational and sinister all at the same time. You understand what I'm saying? Like there's this tension where like when we think about riches, we think, oh, I don't know about that. But yet, what do we wish for our children? We wish for them to have a successful career. When we go and, you know, we raise money, we are thankful that there are wealthy individuals that can write the big checks to help with the building projects or the mission projects or whatever else it might be. Riches are, are, are like we view it in disdain out of one side, but then it is almost wistful and, you know, aspirational on the other. Like it's lack of faith, it's greedy, but yet it's the blessing from the Lord. At the same time, we have this tension. We aspire to riches. We want our children to be successful, but yet we're worried that it's going to lead us down the path of greed and corruption. So really, we need to ask the question, what does the Bible mean when it says prosper? What does it mean for the believer to be prosperous? And so we're about to read the key statement in this presentation today. This is in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Notice the sweet balance of this statement. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You notice here in Proverbs, neither poverty nor riches. And the Bible here also gives us the pitfalls of both extremes. When we are so full and we are able to just, you know, we feel like, oh, is this not great Babylon that I have built? And we, we get hubris and we get prideful. We say, who is this God? And we forget who God is. That's the danger of excessive riches. And that's what the Bible is warning against. It is easier for, or easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what it was talking about. Because it's so easy to forget God in our affluence. But then on the flip side, the Bible is also clear, poverty is not a virtue. In fact, they are tempted as well to sin, to steal, and to profane the name of the Lord, and to be covetous, and to be looking wistfully and coveting what other people have. And then for some, they actually take the action of stealing. So the beautiful balance is, give me the food that is needful for me. So what does it mean to be prosperous? It means simply to have our needs met and to have enough. When we have enough to meet our needs, 
We are prosperous in accordance to the definition of the Bible. We have crossed that threshold into prosperity. And so if that's true, and this is the secret, secret to uh, prosperity, I guess you can say, the secret formula to prosper, the less I need, the easier it is for me to prosper. That is, that's the math. The less I need, the easier it is for me to prosper. And in fact, tomorrow's presentation, session number two, we are going to talk all about that. Gather up the fragments, the secret to prosperity. That's the title, and that's the topic of our day tomorrow. But in conclusion, two quotes. One is from the Greek philosopher Epictetus. Wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. I believe he was merely saying something that we find in inspiration. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And I pray that that is the state for which, to which we aspire to today. And that brings us to the conclusion of our first session today, Neither Poverty Nor Riches. I hope that we have covered some ground, shared some biblical principles, and have a clear understanding of how the Bible defines wealth and prosperity. Not the world defines it, but as, had God, as how God sees it. So let's bow our heads together as we conclude here uh, our first session for the day. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your word and also the inspired pen of Sister White, the counsel that you give us, not just high-flying principles, but also boots-on-the-ground principles that we can apply in our daily lives. As we deal with the personal finances In our day-to-day experience, we pray you'll give us wisdom. Help us to have the proper mindset and perspective, not of the world, but of your word. To think of wealth not as some means of uh, aggrandizing ourselves, but as a tool to help advance the work of God. I pray, Lord, that we might not um, go to either extreme, but to think as uh, we have just discussed. To prosper, as the Bible says, neither poverty nor riches, to be satisfied and content with what you are giving to us. And may we also be faithful in returning to you what is your own. So guide us today, the remainder of this day, and the remainder of this week at camp meeting as we continue to study and to apply your word to our lives. We thank you and we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.